0: Heavenly Father, this morning I ask that you would help us to know that you are more than enough for wherever we find ourselves today. Lord, whether we find ourselves in a place of great need, a place of wanting, or a place of satisfaction, a place of feeling like we might have enough apart from you, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would understand that you are all that we need that you are more than enough for every situation we find ourselves in. Lord, I pray that you would continue to cultivate that heart in us that gives thanks, that seeks you, that practices surrendering everything in our lives and not just the things in our lives, but our very lives themselves to you. Lord, build into us a heart that understands who we are when we sit next to you and we understand who you are. Lord, this morning I pray that you would be growing in us a heart that has a greater love and desire for you above all things. Lord, we know that that is your desire for us and it's the best thing for us. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I am, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Conduit. And it's my privilege this morning to get to tell you all, welcome home. Welcome to Conduit. We want to be a place, we want to be a church where we are, Come to Jesus where we, where we find ourselves, not in a place where we all have to have it all perfectly put together, where we have to get all of our eggs, or is it ducks in a row, before we come to church, right? We're a place where we've all got places where God is growing and working in our lives, and we're all figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully where we find ourselves right here and now, and so... That's my heart for this community, and and as always, we want to make room for you to be able to take whatever that next step is in following Jesus. If that's getting connected with a small group, if that's getting baptized, if that's having a conversation with with me, a pastor, if that's um, you just kind of want or you want to get involved serving. If you ever. So like, you know what? I want to take one of those next steps. I want to do one of those things. We have these cards in the front pews in front of you. Fill one of those cards out and put it in a silver bucket. We'll get that. That's an easy way for us to know uh, that you're here, and we'll be able to reach out to you and connect you and help you to take that next step. Now, next week is we're going to have church just like we do every week, but it's going to be a little bit different. Um, one of the things, I was thinking about this this morning, right? Like, we often, we refer to this building, right? The bricks and the wood and the floor. And we call this the church. Well, that's not really true. Actually, you are the church, right? Like, like this is just a building until you guys show up on Sunday, right? We are the body of Christ. We are the church, Um, So the church, we as the church are going to meet outside next week. Uh, (laughs) We're going to meet underneath the tent. We're going to have just some time to kind of enjoy the nature, enjoy the beautiful season that we've been having this month. Um, And we're going to be out underneath the tent. Um, And so with that in mind... We're not going to be bringing the pews that you're currently sitting on uh, outside. So you need to bring your own chair. Uh, So if you don't bring your own chair, you'll be sitting on the ground just like uh, they did in Jesus' time. Uh, So so, uh, just a friendly reminder about that. But we also have opportunity for baptisms. We're going to be uh, baptizing a couple people next week. And we're super excited about doing that. Um, But if you yourself have not taken that next step of getting baptized, there's never a better time to do it than now. That's, That's my conviction. Whether you've been following Jesus for a little bit of time or a long time and you've not gotten baptized yet, I would love the privilege and the opportunity to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life. So let me know. Come talk to me after service, and we'll get that set up. So I want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to participate in that that wants to. That is all the announcements we have for today. All right, um, we're going to take a moment. I I need a moment of prayer as we just get ready to, to talk about God's Word. Heavenly Father, ask that you would help us to lean into you this morning, to hear your voice, to hear your Word above all things. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we are starting a brand new series today, right? And it's going to be misquoted, right? You're like, well, we're misquoted. Well, what's that? Well, like I was thinking about it and like, you know, I'm pretty happy with myself when I finish a book that's like 300 pages um the book the Bible's like usually like most most editions are like over a thousand pages right the bible's a big book, right like there's a lot in here um some of it's pretty hard to understand, right like there's passages I read, and I'm like i don't know what that means <laughs> I'm gonna have to study it a little bit um and just like any big book right like it it can be kind of complicated it can be maybe hard to remember all the pieces of it, and maybe easy to misquote, right? And the Bible, like, the reason that, like, the Bible is important to us is because we believe that it's the way that God has revealed himself to us, right? Like, if we believe that there's a God, we can't see God, so I can't just make up what I would like to think about God, but God is rather he has told us about himself in this book. And so this is a pretty important book when it comes down to it, right? We want to be making sure that we understand this book correctly, because in doing so, we begin to understand God. It's God's primary way of speaking to us in our lives. And so when we begin to misquote that book, when we begin to misquote, misunderstand passages in the Bible, we can maybe we can run into some pitfalls. And I was thinking about this, and there's kind of like, there's like two A's that we can misquote the Bible, right? First is, and this one is kind of a little bit more humorous, but like we, we tend sometimes to think that there are quotes that are in the Bible that just actually aren't there, right? Made up Bible verses that are in second hesitations, um, <laughs> right? Uh, like, like a couple of these, uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is whenever God closes one door, he always opens another uh, I think I think that's the nuns in the Sound of Music. Um, that's it's not it's not in the Bible. You will not find it. Um, another one is God helps those who help themselves. It's not in there. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in there either. Uh, I think that one's from like a like a early 1900s book on like proper manners and washing your hands or something like that. Um, so that's like, those are things that are just not in there. Actually, I want to, t- I want to do like a, an experiment right now. I want to do, so all of you who are tech savvy or feel comfortable using a smartphone, pull out your smartphone uh, and open up Google, open up your search browser. I'll give you all a minute. Not very often does the pastor encourage everyone to get onto their phone in the middle of the sermon. Um, but pull up your Google browser, your search engine and type in John 14.8, right? John 14.8, when you've searched that, hit the images button so that you can see the images, so you're like doing an image search for John 14.8. And when you do that, I'm seeing everybody typing away, little thumbs, tip, tip, tip. Um, but go ahead, and we're going to put up a picture. When you do that, you should see about more than half of the images that show up on this uh, this Google search should say this or should look like this image that's going to be up here on the screen. It says, John 14.8, if God is all you have, you have all you need. About half of the images that you see on Google will say that. That sounds really great, doesn't it? It's too bad that's not what John 14.8 says. <laughs> the, the next slide is actually what John 14.8 says. Go ahead and let's see that. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. It's, it's not the same. Like, actually, like, it's not even what the passage means, right? Like, like Philip is saying, like, Jesus, like, we don't believe in you. Like, just show us, like, show us the Father, and then we will we will believe. He's not talking about being sufficient in God. So Google, like, that little Google search, half of those images are just flat wrong. (laughs) Like, I looked, I tried to find translations that, like, said something close to that. They don't. So I don't know if, like, that was someone's sermon point, and then they just, like, put the verse underneath of it, and it's just been repeated throughout, you know, the internet, because the internet just tends to repeat things over and over. It never goes anyway. But that's an example of a misquote of thinking that there is a one thing that's in the Bible that's not. And it's not that that sentiment is all that particularly bad, like that'd make a good sermon topic, but it's just not what John 14, 8 says. So um, it's kind of, you know, that that that's one way we can misquote the Bibles. So we maybe think that there's some things that are in the Bible that just aren't there. And then the other way we can misquote the Bible is more to misunderstand the Bible, right? We see a verse, we read a passage, we actually get it right, get the words right, What we misunderstand the meaning of it. Or we use it in a way that seems to indicate that we don't understand it. I was thinking about this and like, it's kind of a big deal, right? Like we, the, the Bible, if it's that important, right, we should make sure we understand it because we don't want to be walking around with a misunderstanding of something that's actually supposed to be true. And uh, some of you who know me or taken our front door class or just hung out with me long enough know that I love the comic, the Sunday strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. It's my favorite Sunday strip. Um, and there's this running gag in Calvin and Hobbes all the time, and it's it's that when uh, Calvin's dad, you know, Calvin comes up to his dad and has got a question, and, and then Calvin's dad gives him answers, but they're just... Totally off base, right? Um, so I want to take one. I want to read one together. It's Sunday morning. So let's read a comic together. Sunday, Sunday funny. Um, so you can follow along up on the screen. Calvin comes up and he says, Dad, how come old photographs are always black and white? Didn't they have color back then? Sure they did. In fact, those old photographs are in color. It's just the world was black and white then. <laughs> really? Yep, the world didn't turn color until sometime in the 1930s, and it was pretty grainy color for a while, too. Um, That's really weird. Well, truth is stranger than fiction. (laughs) But but then why are old paintings in color? If the world was in black and white, wouldn't the artists have painted it that way? Not necessarily. A lot of great artists were insane. (laughs) But... But how could they have painted in color anyways? Uh, Wouldn't their paints have been shades of gray and black then? Of course, but they turned color like everything else did in the 1930s. So why didn't old black and white photos turn color too? Because they were color pictures of black and white, remember? That's a brain twister. Um, (laughs) The world is complicated, place Hobbes. Whenever it seems that way, I take a nap in a tree and wait for dinner exactly, Hobbes is my spirit animal. Um, <laughs> that describes my uh, afternoon, um, <laughs> right? But like, that's funny. It's humorous. I can't wait to do that maybe to a kid someday. Uh, <laughs> actually, actually, um, actually, I did do this. I did do, I did this to my uh, brothers in one way, um, unintentionally. You know, like my brothers, I'm, I'm the oldest of four, so I, I had some fun with my younger brothers and I would, you know, I'd get up there, and I'd like, hey, guys, like, you know I could crack my nose, right, like, if you've ever had an uncle that does that, um, and they, like, I forgot about it, like, I just did that as a kid, always, like, you know, you know, just, which I'm not cracking my nose, I'm not cracking my nose, that's just my fingers on my teeth, <laughs> or my, and they, and I forgot about it for the longest time, and then my brothers were, like, upper high school, and we were at, like, a Social function of something. We're talking to somebody, and they're like, "Oh, Luke, show them that you can crack your nose." And and my friend turned to me, and he's like, "Yeah, Luke, you can crack your nose." Like, so um, my brothers were a little embarrassed. <laughs> um, so we don't want to be doing that. We don't want to be continuing to be spreading misinformation, fooling people, or just even be not getting scripture completely right. And so uh, my desire with this sermon series, Misquoted, is to talk about some passages from the Bible that maybe get quoted an awful lot or maybe we've heard, but maybe we don't always completely understand it well or as good as we possibly can. My hope is that in doing this, we're going to learn a little bit more about the Bible, learn and maybe sharpen some of our skills on how to read and how to interpret the Bible. Um, and for us to kind of grow. I, I desire um, to do all of this in some good humor. I, I, I don't have a... I'm not up here finger-wagging, saying, you got the Bible wrong. <laughs> like, that's not my desire, right? I want to do this in good humor. I want us to be a growing thing. And and I don't want it to be a place of, like, calling people out or being embarrassment or saying, ah, oh, people just don't get it, you know? Like, that's not my intention. I, um, you know... As someone who speaks on a regular basis, um, I know that I say things that are not entirely correct. Uh, I actually had a friend point this out to me the other week. Uh, good friend. Um, he, he was listening to one of my sermons, and he was like, Luke, like, the Babylonians did not send the Israelites back from captivity. That was the Persians. So I thought that was a big mistake. But, like, um, so... You know, a good friend will kind of you know correct you if you're like getting something wrong. But so my desire for this is not embarrassment, but it's for growth, right? It's for us to learn how to use the Bible a little bit more better. So, what's the passage we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, right? So we're going to be looking at this passage. We've got it up here. You can turn to it in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, we finished our series on minor prophets, so you thought maybe we'd be done with prophets, but nope, we're going to read another prophet. Um, Jeremiah 29.11, 20, if you don't know that reference by heart, I bet you've heard this verse anyways. 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Right? Now, if you're like me, or if you've been in church, Christian culture long enough, you've seen that verse on mugs, pillows. Um, Christian greeting cards. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I cannot tell you how many cards I got had that verse in it. It started to make me self-conscious. Like, does everybody think like I've got no plans for myself? <laughs> Like, is everybody like, don't worry, Luke. (laughs) I was really getting kind of self-conscious about it. I was like, okay, um," right? And so this is a very, um, very popular passage. It's a lot of times it's people's life verses, right? And so I'm aware that in talking about this and maybe saying, well, let's like talk about maybe how this might be misunderstood. I might be getting close to stepping on some toes, right? And so I'm aware of that, and I want to do this in, with compassion. And, you know, I don't want to just get up here and be like, um, well, actually, um, which is totally my personality, but, um, no, my desire is today is not to come up here and pop everybody's Bible balloons, right? And say like, ah, you got it wrong. My desire, my heart is that actually when we're done talking about this, that you would treasure this verse more than you do when we start. Right, that you would have a greater picture of who God is and a greater picture of what this actually means for us. So, before we begin to unpack this verse, and uh, I want to give us just some like study tips. Right, like maybe um, you've never kind of been told like what's a good practice or way of reading the Bible or kind of understanding a passage. So, I've got these study tips here. And the first study tip, the first step in kind of studying studying a passage is to start with context, right? Start big, get small, right? Identify where the book, where the passage is in the Bible. Is it Old Testament, New Testament? What book is it in? What kind of book is it? What's the chapter? What are the verses around it, right? Start big, get small. Kind of understand where it's placed in the Bible. The next is to look at the content, right? Ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how questions. Like, look at the words, look for repetition. Like, what is this passage talking about? What words are there? What words are not there? The next step is after you've looked at the context, the content is then to compare, right? Now you compare it to the rest of scriptures. Is this talked about elsewhere? Is it cross-referenced? What does the rest of the Bible teach about this topic? Does it kind of Help us bring any clarity to what this means. And then the last one, after you've looked at the context, content, and compare, is to apply. And some of you all thought I was going to give you the four Cs, um, but I'm not that good. (laughs) So the last step is to apply the principle uh, to your life. It's the idea of taking, all right, what is the, the gist of this passage? What is it getting at? What's the principle of it? And then what does that mean for me? how do I apply that to my particular life and context? And so that's literally what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to look at the context, the content, compare the passage, and then apply it to ourselves. Um, that's the secret. That's pretty much what I do every Sunday up here, guys. Um, but so first we're going to look at the context of Jeremiah. Um, and so Jeremiah 29 11, right? So Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is in the Old Testament. So that means it's before Jesus came. Um, It's one of the prophets, right? So uh, he's one of the major prophets, not one of the minor prophets. We just finished talking about the minor prophets. That means it's a longer book. Um, Anybody got any guesses as to who wrote the book of Jeremiah? Oh, come on. (laughs) Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Jesus is also a good answer. Um, (laughs) um, So Jeremiah, a lot of Bibles, the chances are if you've got a Bible, um, a lot of the the paperback um, NIVs that we have in the pews um, have a little section at the beginning of every book of the Bible, a little paragraph. It's not scripture, but it's a summary of what that book of the Bible is about. Who wrote it, kind of what's maybe in it, and what kind of to expect, and maybe some big ideas in it. A lot of Bibles have that. Um, some don't, but a lot of them do. Yours probably does. Um, and when you that's a good place to start. It helps you understand and see, maybe, okay, what am I diving into? What's in this passage? And what we find for Jeremiah is that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He's kind of a sad guy um, because he was, a lot of the prophets we've talked about all kind of were like, guys, you need to repent or else you will be exiled and judgment will come. Well, Jeremiah is saying, look, you guys didn't repent and here's the judgment. He's living through the exile. He's living through the destruction of Jerusalem and people being carried off to Babylon and so he's writing to those people, and he's in the middle of all of it. He's not just predicting that it's going to happen. He's there saying it is happening, and this is what the Lord is doing in it. All right, so that kind of gives us a bigger context. And so now let's dive into the chapters, Right, right? We're going to go into 29, right? Uh, 29, 11, there's 10 verses that come before verse 11. So let's... I don't know what those are. Let's find out, because I only ever hear about that one verse. Let's hear what the rest of these verses say. 29.1 starts off with this. says, This is the, te- this is the text of, a, of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he goes on to name who he gave the letter to. Okay, so we get the idea, all right, we're going about to read a letter that was written by Jeremiah to people who were in exile, people who had been taken captive when when Jerusalem was captured, and they were taken away to Babylon. So the rest of this passage is that letter. It's a specific letter to specific people. And then let's look at what that letter starts. That letter starts for us in verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number and there and do not decrease. So you've got this idea. He's giving some really practical advice. He's saying, like, this is how you should live. You should still have babies. Um, You should buy houses. You should build houses. You should continue to live your life. He's giving very practical advice to how they should live while they're in exile. And we get this sense in verse 4. It says that, you know, we get this, uh, just kind of this calling, this identifying who he is talking to. And who is talking? The Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, is talking to the people who were carried off into exile. And then the rest of the passage, um, up through the next couple verses, uh, kind of begin to talk, continue to talk about that advice, but then also say, don't listen to false prophets. They're like, don't listen to the prophets that are there with you. They are not true prophets. They are saying false things to you. And now let's pick up in verse 10. It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart." I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations in the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I would like to point out that verse 14 doesn't get put on pillows very often. Right? Like, well, why? Well, it says that the Lord banished them um, and that the Lord carried them into exile. Right. As we begin to kind of look at this whole passage, we begin to kind of see, oh, there's maybe a bigger picture that verse 11 fits into. Right. And we're like, oh, well, is verse 11. Like what is how does that impact it? So we've kind of looked at the context, everything around the the verse. Now let's look at the content. I want to notice some repetition, Um. Things that are kind of repeated over and over again in this passage. The first thing is this idea that the Lord carried them off into exile. We see it in verse 4. It's, the Lord God of Israel says to all those, I carried into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Right? And then that's all, again, that's said twice in verse 14. It says, I um, will bring you back from captivity I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, uh, and I will bring you back from the place which I carried you into exile. So there's this continued repetition of God being the one who put them in exile in the first place. Okay. And then there is a repeated theme of prosperity. When we go back to verse 5, verse 5 says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may too have sons and daughters. Increase in number and do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Right? There's this repetition of the word prospering, of seeing, of seeking the good things in life, of growing, and the Lord blessing that. And that is carried over in verse 11, the verse we're talking about. And then the last thing that I see repeated in this passage, in verse 8, says, um, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have, sent, I have, sent, um, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And then if we were to go verses 15 through the rest of that passage, it details how God is going to punish those false prophets. So as we begin to zoom out from just verse 11, we begin to think about all the different things around it. We've got these themes of God being the one who brought judgment, who is promising future blessing. We've got God desiring for them to not listen to false prophets, not worship false gods. And he's got this desire for them to, um, to prosper, but in the context of all of those things. When we read 10 through 13 again, how does that make, the rest of the, make that passage feel to us again or sound to us? This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, so there's going to be a time, 70 years, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me. This part of the passage hits different for me after thinking about all of that. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Right? We begin to see like, okay, well, God, God seems to maybe have a higher priority than the prospering of his people. It's actually, it seems more like he cares more about their heart. Because why is he waiting? Why, why do they have to wait 70 years if he's got plans to prosper them? Right? Why did he send them and carry them off into exile in the first place if he's got plans to prosper them? Why put them in exile in the first place? Well, I think it's because the, the primary point of the passage isn't the prospering, isn't the blessings that God has for his people. I think the primary point of the passage is his people coming back to him, not listening to false prophets, not worshiping false gods, but truly having a heart set on him. And so as we think about this, we can maybe summarize this passage in a new way. We can say that God has plans and desires to bless Israel But his first concern is with their heart for following him. right? So it's not that he doesn't have plans, that he doesn't want to bless them or prosper them. It's that he's got something also bigger in mind, that he's got something very specifically tied for them. And that begins to create a clearer picture for us. So let's then, so we've done the, context we've done the content now we need to compare all right what is this passage how does this passage compare to the rest of scripture i was thinking about what passage would be a good passage to compare this with and another passage that came to my mind is a passage that sometimes might get misquoted and that's romans 8:28 so we're going to flip forward to the other part of the bible the new testament going to go to romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8, I'm going to jump down to verse 28, and this is a fairly, again, a fairly well-known verse, and it says that, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That sounds like a really encouraging passage. God works all things to the good of those who love him. And one thing I want to point out, and sometimes gets missed when we maybe quote this verse, is that it doesn't say that God works, makes all good things happen to people who love him. It says, in all things, that all things means good and bad things. So it means good and bad things happen to people, but God has a purpose in it, right? That's like, look, let's do briefly what we did in Jeremiah, do it here in Romans. So we know the book of Romans was written by Paul to Roman believers. That's why it's named Romans. Roman people who lived in Rome, and he is seeking to encourage them. If we jump up to verse 18, right? So this is, um, this is also it's in the New Testament. So this is post-Jesus, So talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus. And in verse 18 of chapter 8, says, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Oh, he just said present sufferings. Talking about suffering. For the creation waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought to the, into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved, by hope that is seen, that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So he's talking about, he's saying, We're suffering, we're experiencing hardship, we're groaning inwardly, we're experiencing difficulty. Right? So this passage is talking of two believers saying, like, You're suffering. There are things that are not going right. Actually, not only are you suffering, but if you look at the whole world around you, we just get this picture of like things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are broken, and it groans inwardly. We are waiting for a future hope where things will be made right. Not a present realization of that, but a future hope. These next two verses in 26 and 27 says... In the same way that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What is that saying in brief? In brief, it's saying we've got bad things happening, and you don't know how to pray. You don't actually know what you should be praying for, but God's going to pray for you anyways. The Holy Spirit's going to be praying for you. And so we've got this thing. We are understanding. We don't understand. And so when we go to read verse 28 again, it says, and we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So when we look at that, we begin to get this picture of like, actually, like, we can know that God is working all things to good, but we don't actually understand what he's doing, right? God is working in your suffering to bring about a good that is bigger than your understanding, right? That is how we could summarize this passage. God is working in your suffering to bring about a good that is bigger than your understanding, right? And so this this passage, that's much more complex than just, like, Oh, cheer up. It'll work out. Like, that's, that's not what Romans 28 is saying. It's saying, look, God is doing something, and what you're going through is really hard. It's actually really painful. And God is going to do something through it and in it, but you just don't know what yet. We don't have that full picture. If we think about it, I, I think about it like a, a small child, when you take a small child to go to the doctor's appointment, right, and I don't, you know, if you've ever taken a small kid to a doctor's appointment, like, I hear that there's a lot of crying, right, <laughs> and it's not always the child, um, right, because, like, it's like no kid wants to be poked and prodded and touched and cold things put on him and pricked with a needle, like, that's not fun, right. And the kid's going to cry. The kid's going to freak out and it's like, why are you doing this to me? Leave me alone. I was fine. We're just here in my diaper. Leave me alone. Um, well, That's no fun. But like you as a parent and the doctor know, well, we've got something. We've got a good for you. Like we're trying to take care of you. We have a bigger good for you than you can actually understand. Like trying to explain to like a two-year-old, like, no, like we need to do this. You need to feel the pain because this will make you feel better. Like, like Kid doesn't care. It's like, well, this is uncomfortable. I don't like it. I don't care if it's good for me. Right? Well, the small child is us. Right? Like, that's us in relationship to God. Is we don't understand the good that God has for us. All we know is that right now it's really difficult and it's really painful. So, what is that greater good? Does this passage clue us in as to what maybe that greater good is? If we look back at verse 18, I think it really answers that question for us. It says, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Present sufferings, the things we're going through, don't even, they pale in comparison to the future Glory that's going to be revealed in us. If we read past verse uh, 28, and we start in verse 29, it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be transformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorifies. It's this picture of, of being conformed and being transformed to the image of God, and that bringing about a greater glory than anything we can imagine or understand. That's what we don't get, is that in the middle of our suffering, God's got something that is more glorious, more grand and beyond our comprehension that we cannot see yet. When we look back at at chapter At Jeremiah 29, we begin to see that God's saying, like, look, I had to send you into exile because I needed your hearts. I could have continued to bless you in the land like I had been doing, but you continue to run away from me. I'm not willing to let you continue to run away from me. Jesus picks up this idea in Mark. I'm going to turn to the Gospels really quick. This is in Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight, verse thirty-four. Oops. Mark eight, thirty-four. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Um, Then he called. Then. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the entire world yet forfeit their soul? All right. What good is it for you to prosper and experience all the good plans that God could possibly send your way if you don't love God, if you're not actually following him? God's saying, look, like, I desire to prosper Israel, but I'm not going to because they've continued to run away from me and I want to get their attention. This makes me think of, um, this, this is the point is that God is more concerned with your heart than he is your comfort. God is more concerned about your heart and your relationship with him than with everything going right in your life or things going the way you want them to. God wants good things for you. I absolutely believe that. But God wants your heart to be conformed like Jesus and to be following him and to be in relationship with him more than anything else. This makes me think about um, one of my favorite quotes from the author C.S. Lewis. If you could put that up here on the screen for me. This passage is from the book, The Problem of Pain. It says, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure and speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we taste the good things in life, that's meant to say there's something better. That there's a God who made this. And God's whispering to us, calling to us in that. But if God has to, he will use pain to get our attention. God is not willing to let you be comfortable and let you to continue to walk away from it into destruction. God cares more about you than that. Because when we begin to think about it, when do we pray the most? When do we seek God the most? It's not when I'm comfortable. It's not when everything's going well. It's when things are off the rail. It's when I'm incredibly aware of how much I actually need him. It's when I realize I'm actually not self-sufficient. I can't handle it all. I need him. That's when we all of a sudden begin to see reality. The fact is, is that we always needed him that much. We always needed to be relying on him that much. We just let the comfort of the situation blind us to that fact. God has a higher priority. And that impacts us. You wouldn't, like, like, I'm not a parent if you haven't guessed that yet. Um, But, like, you wouldn't give a child a knife right like like a little kid like 3 year old you wouldn't give them a kitchen knife like if they were like in the kitchen they're like oh I'll, like see you chopping some vegetables and they were like oh i want to play with that do, do you hand them the cleaver no <laughs> you don't because like they cuz they just a 3 year old with a cleaver just sounds like a nightmare um or a horror movie um and and what it what it is 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 we say no, like we, we can't give that to you because your safety is a higher priority. And the kid probably would throw a fit if they really, really wanted it, right? Like how many times have we seen kids throw a fit for a thing that they really want that they just cannot have that? Like, no, that you're going to hurt yourself. Um and so for us, similarly, God has a higher priority. God will not let us harm ourselves. and not let us continue to run comfortably away from him, right? God's not willing to give you all the comfort that you possibly want and then just let you walk away from him. That's not the God we serve. God loves you more than that. So God is more concerned with your heart than your comfort. Or if we begin to summarize this principle, if we begin to really kind of crystallize well, no, I would say that that is the main point, It's that God is more concerned with your heart than your comfort. And then the last thing I would say is that in the middle of your suffering, um, God is always present with you and working in your heart. Right? We begin to, to apply this passage. We've got an understanding of what these two passages are saying. We get a picture of what's going on. We begin to get a picture that God is always with you in the middle of your suffering and he's always working in your heart. This is, this, is, this is the actual promise to hang on to. right? When we look at Jeremiah 29.11, we see a picture of a God who definitely has plans. Who has bigger plans than comfort, bigger plans than prospering. He has plans for holiness. He has plans for you loving and knowing him to a greater degree. He has plans of in your life and being actively present with you, right? God's people are in exile and he's like, I'm with you. Like you will prosper in the difficult situation and it's going to go on for another 70 years, but it's going to be good because I'm there with you. And there's an end product. There's something that's going to be birthed in your hearts that you don't quite understand yet. I have a bigger purpose. So we're not in exile, right? But that doesn't mean that we're not going through difficult stuff here, right? It's just, it's not true. I know there's just, there's difficult stuff in so many people's lives. Places where we're like, God, like, why is this pain here? Why is this discomfort here? Why is this suffering? Why is this trial here? Why? It's the question we always want to answer, right? We want to know why pain is happening. And I always tell people, it's like, well, the Bible has an entire book dedicated to it, to that question of why bad things happen to good people. It's a book of Job, right? And it's 40-some chapters long. Job, outstanding guy, has awful things happen to him. Some friends come along with him and they talk about and discuss why the bad things happened to him for about 40 chapters. And then God shows up in the last couple of chapters and says, you don't get to know why. A lot of times we like to take verses like Romans eight twenty eight and Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and use them as bumper stickers and kind of just bumper stick them onto people's pain, people's suffering, people's situation and say... Well, God has good plans for you. God works all things to good as a way to kind of just like make it all comfortable. Say, oh, everybody got uncomfortable because really sad, bad things are happening and this makes me feel things. And I don't like that. And so we'll just maybe quote a verse and just stick it on there and say, that's all good now. That's not true. That's not the passage, right? Neither of these passages tell us that we're going to know why a particular thing happened. But they do say that God is going to do something through the particular things that happen. Doesn't mean it's the reason, but it does mean that there there will be something glorious on the other end of it. That there's something better. See, I don't think we want a faith of God give me that. Or God make me happy. right? Because that faith... Like I could get up here and I could preach that message, lots of but like that's not going to do you any good because I know that that's not going to work out that's not how life works out that's not how my life is worked out It's just not. I want a faith of God be with me, not God give me. I think that is a that's a faith that actually addresses what's going on in our lives, not a faith of saying everything's fine, putting up a mask and pretending that we're all good, if we've all got it perfectly together. No, it's an honest faith. And it's, it's the faith that's honestly represented in the Bible. That, that's what the Bible teaches, is that hard things happen, and God's with you through it. Right? Jesus promises suffering. He doesn't promise an easy life. He tells you to pick up your cross. We follow a God who was killed on a cross, not one who went on vacation somewhere. And so, this is the encouragement to us, is that we have a God who knows what we're going through. A God, a faith that actually can deal with the hard things in life. A lot of times we run from hard things, difficult conversations, sad things, because we're like, I don't know if I can handle that. Well, guess what? God can handle it. Because God, God's there. God's in the middle of it. it. There are some of the hardest things in this book. Right? There are some really sad parts of this Bible. There are some psalms where you just hear people crying out to God in their pain and their suffering. I don't, I don't talk about this passage very often. I don't recommend people read it a ton unless I'm talking with someone who's experiencing extreme pain. But Psalm 88, if you read Psalm 88 sometime, there are passages in the Bible, there's laments. And the laments are always like, Lord, what's going on? Lord, what's going on? Lord, what's going on? And then they usually end with a verse or two of comfort of saying, but Lord, I will still praise you in the midst of the storm. Psalm 88 is the one Psalm in the Bible, the one lament that doesn't end that way. It ends with saying that darkness is my closest friend. That's how that whole psalm ends. The entire chapter is just one giant cry to the Lord in the middle of pain and suffering. And if that book of the Bible, if there's room for that in the Bible, there's room for what you're going through in the church. There's room for what you're experiencing in your life here. And God can handle it because he put it in his Bible. He put it in his book. So I would encourage us to lean into what God has for us, to be seeking God, to be trusting that he is always working in the midst, always present, and always working in our hearts in a way that we maybe don't even understand yet. If you would, please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would that you would draw our hearts to you. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, whether we find ourselves in a difficult place or in a place of comfort, Lord, I ask that you would not settle to leave us far from you. Lord, give us a bigger picture of what that glory is that you have for us. Help us to see that you will not be satisfied with leaving us a comfort if we're running away from you. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who chases us down, does not let us run away from you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are with us even when we don't feel it. Lord, I pray This morning, for everyone in this room who's got something hard that they're dealing with, a trial, a pain, a discomfort, suffering, Lord, I ask that you would minister to their hearts, that they would be supported by this body, that they would be known here, that they would feel safe here, Jesus, ultimately, I trust everyone in this room who is experiencing suffering to your care. Lord, might your Holy Spirit be doing the things that only you can do. Lord, give us a glimpse of you. Give us a greater picture and understanding of you. Lord, anchor us in the midst of our storm. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to fix our eyes on you ever more daily. Help us to rely upon you not just when it's e- not when it's just hard, but when it's easy too. Help us to understand our need for you, and Lord, I ask that you would come through in abundance for us. Lord, help us to know and to lean into the truth, the fact that you do have plans for us. That you are working in our circumstances, that you are present with us, that our life is not just being tossed about, but that you are doing something in the middle of it. Lord, pray that you would give us faith that leans on you even when we lack understanding, even when we lack clarity as to what you are doing or what could possibly be doing in our life. Lord, I ask that you would give us a faith that reaches beyond our understanding. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you would make all this so. Amen.